you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Studios. I want to thank everybody for coming. It's a wonderful occasion for your 45th launch anniversary. Let's cheer to that. This is the 45th anniversary of the Voyager mission. We heard parts of it back at the start of episode one. We were all in Von Karman Auditorium at JPL. There were at least a couple hundred people, old and young, who had served on the many teams that ran the spacecraft over 45 years. It was so joyful, I felt part of something astonishing, maybe even miraculous. I wanted to play this because the other night, I went listening back through this podcast, all the episodes. I was trying to wrap my brain around everything we've learned. Also, everything I thought I knew about Frank Molina and the Suicide Squad. And I decided the Voyager anniversary would be a good place to return. I think of the genius of the Voyager engineers and how I wish that it would be celebrated. They are genius so that all of our kids and grandkids could know what genius was behind this amazing achievement. That's Andrean. She's the award-winning writer and creator of the Cosmos series on television. She also used to be married to Carl Sagan. Voyager is that rare example of scientific and technological genius which, to my knowledge, has hurt no one, done on behalf of the whole human species with its discoveries shared immediately with everyone on Earth. It is that rare confluence, that crossroads of our scientific and technological, mathematical, engineering genius, but also our art, our culture, the music of our species. There are two reasons I want to return to Voyager. One, Voyager represents the purity of space exploration, the intent Melina had for reaching the stars. Plus, Voyager is just so noble, so beautiful. Think about it. In the entire sweep of time, the whole cosmic calendar, Voyager is the farthest human-made object to exist away from Earth with a golden record on board that's got everything from Bach to Chuck Berry. And Voyager wasn't about building a weapon or colonizing Mars. The idea was to take our biggest, boldest questions and throw them as deep and far as we could into space and time. Are we alone in the universe? Who else exists? And who the heck are we anyway? I just want to close by saying that I can't help but think of Voyager's earlier family, and most especially Carl Sagan, who embodied those same values that I think Voyager does, and all the rest of the men and women who have
that mean voyager, the epic achievement that will speak for us, perhaps even beyond the time that our species and our planet can speak for itself. Congratulations. Go, Voyager, go. However, making this podcast changed how I feel about Voyager. And this leads me to reason number two, because now when I think about Voyager, I also think about all the sacrifices it took, the sacrifices that aerospace asks of people generally, engineers like my father never seeing their families, geniuses like Frank Molina or Chen Shushen hunted down by their own government and eventually driven out. I think about the nobility of the mission, sure, but I also think about the real politique going on behind the scenes. Voyager was an epic achievement, as Anne said, and the team that made it deserves all the credit they receive. I guess my point is, I mean, the point of this podcast in the first place is that there is another team, much earlier, who also deserves credit for trying things nobody thought possible, to entertain ideas that everybody else thought were nuts, for building a ladder to the stars, or at least the first couple rungs of it. I'm M.G. Lord. This is season one of L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alleyist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. The fact is that Melina, as a mere graduate student, founded the most significant institution for space exploration in the United States, and did so at a time when the very idea of rocket science was preposterous. That is an extraordinary thing to do. And that he developed both the early structure of JPL and saw it through its period of kind of more military involvement to actually realize precisely the scientific civilian ideal that he always wanted. That's Fraser MacDonald, lecturer at the University of Edinburgh and author of Escape from Earth, A Secret History of the Space Rocket. Obviously, founding JPL was crucial to making Voyager and other American space missions possible. But there's another brainchild of Molina that doesn't get as much credit, maybe because it was dwarfed in both size and notoriety by Werner von Braun's V2 rocket. Remember the whack corporal? 
It's the rocket Molina tested in White Sands a year before he took a leave of absence from JPL. In his book, Fraser describes the WAC Corporal as the midpoint of early American space exploration, coming after the breakthroughs of the early 20th century, but before the Apollo moon landings. And that's because of how high the rocket went. It was aimed to reach an altitude of about 30 kilometers, and in the first test it reaches 73 kilometers. And that really makes it America's first successful rocket. Now, the theoretical work, the actual drawings and figures that helped to make the WAC Corporal a reality were published in a paper by Molina and Chen in 1943. The paper was called, quote, A Review and Preliminary Analysis of Long-Range Rocket Projectiles. So at this stage, there's not a sense of space having a boundary, but there is a sense that this rocket is the first one to fulfill the object of rocketry itself, which is a method of reaching extreme altitudes. In other words, an altitude that no other technology, like for instance balloons, could reach. And on by that criteria, the WAC Corporal is America's first successful rocket. It's the first vehicle that reaches an extreme altitude. So that's one reason why Molina and Chen deserve a lot more credit in the development of American rocketry especially in the light of certain Nazis. In a previous episode, we talked about Molina's lifelong discomfort with the military applications of his work, particularly once nuclear warheads got involved. Like a lot of people in aerospace, I imagine, Molina was torn. On the one hand, pure science, exploration. On the other, domination and death. And ironically, his creation, the WAC Corporal, is used both for military and scientific purposes. It kind of goes into the world of civilian science via the Aero-B. The Aero-B is a sounding rocket used for all sorts of scientific applications, like sending animals into space and detecting X-rays emitted from outside the solar system. It actually had thousands of launches. And it goes into the world of military missiles uh, via the corporal missile. The first guided missile to carry a nuclear warhead. And that kind of doubleness is something that is is troubling for Frank Molina. And I think it it really disturbs him such that he had, you know, neurotic symptoms. He'd break out in in sweats uh, and panic attacks as a consequence of this. And he uh, had the second consequence of making him realize that he did not want to work in rocketry if this is what rocketry meant. Unfortunately, that's just the world Molina lived in. The military called the shots in early aerospace. It wasn't until 1958 that JPL became a civilian space agency under NASA. But the story doesn't end there, because the WAC Corporal also laid the foundation for the first multi-stage rocket, the Bumper WAC. Well, I think there's a really good case to be made that the space age might reasonably start with the ascent of the bumper WAC Corporal. It's a kind of hybrid multi-stage rocket where a WAC Corporal is kind of bolted on to a V2. That idea is itself actually Molina's. People give it credit to Von Braun or Clark Milliken. It was Molina's idea and, and Martin Summerfield's to do that. But the ascent of the bumper WAC Corporal 
It's significant because it was the first vehicle to reach Mach 5. It reaches this extraordinary altitude, 244 miles, well within the range subsequently that Sputnik met with great kind of both foreboding and acclaim in the United States. And even a later moment, like something like the success of Explorer 1, the first US successful satellite, the person who holds that up as a success is, of course, Werner von Braun, a Nazi, an SS member. And Melina is nowhere near that story, at no point credited. Which, of course, is something Molina was touchy about. He invented the multi-stage technology that Explorer 1 used to reach space, and that later evolved to take men to the moon. But he's also the one who's hounded out of the country, erased from the history books. Meanwhile, the Nazis are given the red carpet. Molina was known for firing off letters, getting really annoyed. There's one he wrote to NASA's first official historian, Eugene Emmy. Frank writes at some point, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, all the glory to the German V2, but why homegrown American rocket development is so frequently minimized, it's beyond me. And that's one of the reasons we made this show, to set the record straight, to put Molina in his rightful place as one of America's original rocket scientists. Here's Fraser again. I think there's something that's important about Molina that what he leaves us is the idea that it's possible to pursue space exploration for peaceful purposes, for civilian purposes. And that there's something about his biography or his life story that I think is encouraging scientists to take the risk of political involvement, to take the risk of caring about the equitable organization of the social order on Earth. And that was not an easy or a comfortable thing to do in the 1930s. It's certainly not an easy or comfortable thing to do in the 21st century. And I think that Molina is, in that regard, an inspiring figure. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Today, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena plays a more vital role in space exploration than ever before. 
looking for life beyond Earth, creating robots to go where humans can't. It's an enormous campus, staffed by a diverse array of engineers and scientists that, frankly, look pretty different from the yearbook photos of the past. I'm Nagi Cox, and I'm currently a tactical mission lead on both the Curiosity rover and the Perseverance rover. So the Mars Yard is a, a really special place here. It is our outdoor location to test the ability of our rovers and other vehicles to drive around and operate on Mars as they would in an environment that is as close as we can make it to what they might encounter on Mars. So my name is Kobe Boykins, and my title is the Chief Engineer of Europa Clipper. So uh, I serve as the technical authority uh, under the project system engineer for all of the things that are Europa. Europa Clipper is, is a fundamental first order mission, a, what we call our flagship mission to Europa. And Europa is one of the Jovian moons, and it's one of the moons that was seen early by Galileo. What we're really trying to see is does Europa, with the orbit that it has around Jupiter, have the ability to create a thermal environment that could be conducive to life? That's right. Women and people of color are now leading some of the most exciting research at JPL. My name is Suzanne Dodd, and I'm the Voyager project manager here at JPL. You know, I have people come up to me and tell me that their father worked on the project and how much it meant to them or that they became a planetary scientist because of the Saturn and Jupiter flybys. I get fan mail from the whole world. And even young people send me notes about being a female project manager, about you know, what it's like to work on this historic mission. And in 2022, Dr. Lori Leshen became JPL's first woman director. Of course, there's room to grow. Men still outnumber women by about two to one. But seeing more women in leadership roles is a significant step forward. People like Nagui, Kobe, and Suzanne, who are researching life on Mars or Jupiter's moons or just in the universe, period, are the living legacy of what was started nearly a hundred years ago by Molina, Von Karman, and Chen. They're exploring space for the benefit of humankind. And since we're wrapping up, I should probably confront my ambivalence about Jack Parsons. In particular, the reputation he's gained in pop culture over time. Because, let's be clear, did Parsons contribute significantly to the Suicide Squad? Of course. To aerospace generally? Absolutely. However, Jack Parsons' contribution has been, I don't know, a bit overstated, perhaps hyperbolized over time. Here's Fraser McDonald. Well, I just think there's an awful lot of kind of ghastly myth-making about Parsons, like as if he's some sort of, you know, Byronic sexual hero, you know, the kind of charismatic genius that fused, uh, you know, sex and rockets. But the reality is that um, his contribution to rocketry has been, I think, dramatically overstated. And yet it's extraordinary to me that we still have, you know, the extent of positive commemoration of Parsons' life you know, he's got two substantial biographies, he's got a TV series, uh, and all of it founded on some kind of, I think, bullshit notion of him as the, being this kind of magician scientist. And the most ridiculous thing, you know, people have 
think that JPL somehow secretly stands in for the Jack Parsons laboratory or or maybe JPL means, you know, Jack Parsons lives. I mean, it is ridiculous. Jack Parsons has nothing to do with the founding of JPL. He's not anywhere near it. The JPL is founded at a time when he is completely off the scene. And, and I think that point needs to be made more forcefully. Which is probably good news for JPL's reputation, but that's just my opinion. It's not that I think that Parsons is insignificant. He did genuinely make quite important contributions. Fraser's referring to Parsons' fuel development, the solid JADO he invented, made in partnership with Molina's theoretical work, I'll point out. But Parsons' contribution was very quickly superseded. So in terms of his very lasting contribution to rocket engineering, I think Parsons deserves some credit, but it's relatively modest, at least compared to someone like Molina or Tien or von Karman. I think a lot about the future of aerospace. I truly do find somebody like Elon Musk, more than the other billionaires, to be a riveting figure with his ambitions to move us all to Mars. I mean, yes, regretfully, there is something of Jack Parsons in him, but there's a lot of Frank Molina in him, too. What matters most to me is how space exploration continues. Elon would say it's necessary for humanity's survival. I'm sure the Pentagon would tell us it's about saber-rattling still to come. I see it this way. The future of aerospace, of space exploration, has two paths stemming from the Suicide Squad. On the one hand, it's do what thou wilt, the old Jack Parsons motto, where national interests eclipse humanity's interests, where we look up at the heavens and seek to infect them with all the problems we have here on Earth, where discovery is just a manifestation of greed. But there is another direction, and I think it's more rooted in Frank Molina's idealism. It has to do with cooperation, where we don't act out of fear, but out of hope. It goes back to Molina and Chen, and yes, even Parsons, to their earliest moments in childhood, when rocketry was still science fiction and full of wonder. The story of the Suicide Squad, the story of the founding of JPL, is ultimately one of fearlessness. It's about dreaming very big dreams that everybody else tells you are fantasy. And sure, it's also a story about suspected spy rings and guys playing chess blindfolded and L. Ron Hubbard. But in the end, it's really about courage. The same courage required of today's astronauts and engineers, and one that has its roots here in Southern California where a group of really smart mavericks nearly a hundred years ago took some of the first steps towards space. I'm M.G. Lord, and this has been L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is hosted by me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of Alea Studios in collaboration with Western Sound. 
Shana Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Alea Studios. Ben Adair is the executive producer for Western Sound. Dan Leone is the showrunner. Producers are Savannah Wright, Tyler Hill, Caitlin Parker, and Becky Nicolaitis. The show is written by Rachel Knowles, Rose Kranz Baldwin, and me, M.G. Lord. It was edited by Savannah Wright. Sound design by Tyler Hill. Mixing and mastering by Tom McLean. Research and consulting by History Studio. Our website at alaus.com is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Alaus Studios. The marketing team of Alaus Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Alaus Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. L.A. Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets is a production of Elias Studios. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.